Well, this morning, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. And I want you to find chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Many years ago, when I turned 60, I look pretty good for 80, don't I? <laughs> Many years ago, when I turned 60, my sweet wife, who is with me here today, uh, <clears throat> my sweet wife, we have two children. We have a son and a daughter, and their spouses all got together, and they bought me a brown, a luxurious brown leather lounge chair and ottoman. And I'm telling you, it is so comfortable. It's my happy place. It's where I can kick my shoes off, relax, flip a few channels, and even take a nap if I want to, which I've done many times. It's just a great place. Well, we have a similar scene in 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. In this passage, uh, David is relaxing in his palace. His palace was built from the cedars of Lebanon. They were cut there. Then they were floated down the coast of the Mediterranean all the way to Joppa or Jaffa. And uh, then they were transported to Jerusalem. David is sitting in his wood-paneled den with the prophet Nathan, his chaplain. And they're kicked back in matching brown leather lazy board recliners, each of them sipping an ice-cold bottle of Coca-Cola. David, in this rare moment of downtime, has a minute to catch his breath. And uh, there were no wars going on. As a matter of fact, if you look back to verse 1, it tells us the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. So David has a little time to think, a little time to relax, to let his hair down with a trusted friend. And in a very tender moment, David shares with Nathan, and we want to listen carefully to this because the words that come from his mouth reveal what's in his heart. So David says to his confidant, Nate, I'm living here in this palace with cedar walls, the finest of Persian rugs, the best decor, a grand view of the city. But the ark of God, he's talking about the tabernacle, the ark of God dwells within tent curtains or animal skins. And uh, David doesn't even have to finish his thought. Nathan knows where he's going that his desire is to build a house for the ark. And if we go back to chapter 6, you don't need to turn there. Just, just listen carefully. David started off, he took about 30,000 men, and he goes to Baal Judah to the home of Abinadab. And they take the cart, but they transport it all wrong. They put it on a new cart pulled by oxen, and they get to a certain place along the way, and the oxen caused the cart to, to almost tumble over. They almost lost the ark. And then Uzzah puts his hand out. You know the story. 
And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and he struck him dead. So David is somewhat confused about this. So <clears throat> they leave the ark at that point at the home of Obed-Edom. He's a Gittite. Then a little bit of time passes. And about three months later, word comes to David. And he gets the report about how God has been blessing Obed-Edom. So David determines, well, we're going to do it right, and we're going to get the ark to Jerusalem. So Nathan says to David, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So we see that David's resolve is to build a house for the ark of God. Now that's amazing to me. Um, is there any doubt as to why David is referred to as a man after God's own heart? Is there any doubt at all? David is not embroiled in adversity. He is enjoying great prosperity. And still, his first concern is for the glory of God. David was a favorite character of mine, probably my favorite Old Testament character, and has been for a long time, even before I could put my finger on why God, why God thought so much of David. Not too long ago, I preached uh, a sermon at the seminary on <clears throat> David and Goliath. And usually when you hear that message brought, that story, that favorite of especially little boys, uh, you think, and I hear the application made that, uh, do you have giants in your life that need slaying? You know, can you trust in God to help you slay those giants? I don't really think that's the point. I mean, certainly it happened, and it is a point, but I think the major point of the story of David and Goliath was that David was concerned with the glory of God. David was concerned with the glory of God. Need I say, we should be concerned with the glory of God. It's okay to say amen. I don't know what Bob is having you do, but, <laughs> but I'm a Southern Baptist. And uh, it's okay to say amen, because if I have to amen myself through this message, we may be here a while. <laughs> at any rate, at any rate, it is, I think, the major point of this passage as well. The glory of God. The chief end of man, as the Westminster Catechism says, is yes. Yes. Very good. To glorify God. Um, is there any doubt as to why David is referred to as a man after God's own heart? David is concerned for the glory of God. And I agree with what Thomas Carlyle famously said. He said, for every 100 people who can withstand adversity, only one can withstand prosperity. David was living in prosperity. And yet he fought through that. He was the one that even though he had all these palatial surroundings said, I've got to do something about the glory of God. 
I've got to build him a house. That was his desire. That was in his heart. Chapter 7 can easily be divided into three sections. Uh, Listen to them, and if you're a note taker, jot these down. Number one, David's resolve. And as we've seen, he had resolved to build a house. Nathan put his stamp of approval on it. And then we see God's reply, and then we see David's response. So David's resolve is to build a house for the ark of God. And in verse 4, we pick up with God's reply. And uh, Nathan goes home, and the Lord speaks to him in the night. Nathan, now this is uh, my paraphrase. Nathan, you spoke prematurely. You put your stamp of approval on something that I didn't put my stamp of approval on. I've been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle, ever since I brought Israel out of Egypt. And I never complained. This is God saying, you never heard me say, I need a house. You never heard me ask, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Clearly, clearly, God was moving about in a box under animal skins so that he could identify himself with his people. Now we move fast forward to the New Testament. Didn't Jesus do the exact same thing? John tells us, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is an interesting word because it means he pitched his tent. He tabernacled amongst us. He was relating with us. I love the phrase about Jesus that calls him the friend of sinners. Don't you? Doesn't that just do something to you? Uh, Chuck Swindoll, whom I did not know other than just listening to him on the radio, uh, has become a close friend since I've been at the seminary. And I heard him say once uh, in a conversation he said he was having with Dr. Stanley Toussaint. He said to Dr. Toussaint, he said, you know, doesn't it just boggle your mind that Jesus wanted to be with sinners? And Dr. Toussaint, with the Lord now, whom I also dearly loved, said, I'll do you one better than that. They wanted to be with him. Well, Nathan, God says, say to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should rule over my people Israel. Let all this stuff sink in. Uh, You you don't get much lower, and you'll see this when y'all take a trip to Israel. You don't get much lower down the totem pole than a shepherd. Do you remember back in chapter 16 of uh, 1 Samuel, when Samuel came and he was going to... uh, choose the next king of Israel to succeed Saul. Uh, He wanted to anoint this king in the home of Jesse. And so they start bringing in the sons of Jesse for Samuel to anoint. So Eliab is first on the list. Saul looks at him and he says, surely, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But God said, no, 
So then they have to bring in Abinadab. And Abinadab comes in. And these guys had to be big, strong, strapping, good-looking young men. And Samuel thinks, surely this is the one. God said, nope. So then they bring in Shema. Samuel thinks the same thing. No. And they begin to parade in seven, seven of Jesse's sons. And God says, no, no, no. And you remember the famous verse in there that says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So they get down through number seven, and, and then um, Samuel says to Jesse, is that it? Is that all your sons? And Jesse says, no, I got one more. He's a shepherd. He's out in the fields. Think of it. He did not even call in David to stand before Samuel. And when David comes in, reeking of the sheep, probably dirty like most shepherds I've ever seen are, and he stands there, and he also is good-looking, handsome young man, strong, still a teenager. And God says, that's the one. God obviously saw something special in David. And God tells him, or God tells him through Nathan, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should rule over my people Israel. Verse 9, I've been with you and cut off all your enemies. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. In other words, David, you're a turtle on a fence post. You ever seen a turtle on a fence post? I have only in pictures. But I can tell you this, if you ever do, you'll know the turtle didn't get there by himself. Dr. Don Campbell used to say all the time, uh, he referred to himself as a turtle on a fence post. He used to say, it, it, it's an amazing thing what God can do through someone who doesn't mind sharing the credit. David was a turtle on a fence post. The sovereign Lord is saying, I am the one who elevated you. I am the one who lifted you up. You are where you are because of my grace. Let me just interject it very quickly. You are where you are because of God's grace. You say, well, I'm not in a great spot. You are in so much a better spot than so many people I know of, than so many people I can think of. I could just begin to name your blessings and I don't even know you. You're in a great spot. So we come down to verse 11, and here's where we're really going to begin to dig in. Verse 11. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now get this. Look carefully. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. In other words, God had said to David through Nathan, you cannot build me a house. You cannot build me a house. But look what he says here. 
but I will build you a house. Does this, does this blow anybody else away? I, I love this turn of phrase. You cannot build me a house, but I will build you a house. In other words, you cannot build me a house, meaning a temple, but I will build you a house, meaning a dynasty, a royal house, a dynasty of kings. And it would originate with David, but it would never end. And Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment. And it's not lost on David. He gets it. The Messiah was going to come from his loins. The Messiah would be a descendant of his. So God is saying no, but he's also saying, David, you did well that it was in your heart. I'm not going to allow you to build it, but I know what was in your heart and you were concerned with my glory. Or as F.B. Meyer put it, God is wrapping up the divine no in a promise of infinite blessing. Let me interject something else real quick of the many, many applications we could make here. And I want you to listen to me now. You cannot outgive God. There was a time in, in our married life, Lindsay and I, our married life early on, very, we've been married 46 years, and early on we decided that we were going to give and we were going to give. We didn't have the money to do it. We were barely putting groceries on the table, but we decided, and it, it lasted for a while, but we decided we were going to give 20%, not 10%. And I'm not even sure you can prove that we're supposed to give 10% now. You're supposed to give out of the abundance of your heart. We were giving 20% and it was hard. I think we are still reaping benefits from that decision way back then. You can't outgive God. You can't outpace God's grace. He is always going to give back more than you give to him. So in this chapter, God is making a covenant with David. This, mark it down, note takers, and those of you that listen carefully, this is one of the great chapters of the Bible, 2 Samuel 7, one of the greatest. The message of the Bible from this point forward rests upon the promise that God made to David. I'm going to repeat it just so you get it. The message of the Bible from this point on rests upon the promise that God made to David. Now let's go back about a thousand years earlier. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. All right? The first three verses there, they're, they're, they're pivotal. And then that promise that God made to Abraham is ratified in chapter 12. And this promise has to do with the land, the nation, and the blessing that Abraham was going to give, uh, that God was going to give Abraham. I'm going to give you a certain land. I'm going to make you a nation. And I'm going to make you a blessing to all the peoples of the world. Why? Because Jesus would come through you. That's what he was telling Abraham. I remember 
years ago, um, let's see, I, I went to seminary 30 or close to 40 years ago now. Um, and I was sitting in a class by Dr. Pentecost. And he was teaching on the covenants because there are certain unconditional covenants that God makes with his people. And uh, they're unconditional because they're unilateral. And I was sitting in class that day and Dr. Tuss, uh, Dr. Pentecost was talking about uh, the ratification process where the animals were split. Those of you that know your Bibles, the animals were split and separated. And then God, the smoking furnace, goes through while Abraham is in a deep sleep. Normally, two people would go through in the process of making a covenant. But in chapter 15, it is just God because it's a unilateral covenant. He is making these tremendous promises to Abraham. And I can remember sitting in that class... I had read it many times, but I did not know what I was reading. It was just words on a page. And, and I'm telling you, and this is about the weirdest thing that there is about me, but it, 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 it was like the whole room became dark. And it was like I was transported back through thousands of years of time. And it was as if I were there. Dr. Pentecost was a master storyteller. And all he was doing was telling the story of this covenant being ratified in Genesis 15. I could hardly breathe. It was as if I was there. And I came out of that class and I sort of shook my head and I thought, what in the world just happened? And I've never forgotten that. And I encourage you to go back and read the beginning of Genesis chapter 12 and then read Genesis 15. And you'll see what I'm talking about. This covenant that God made with Abraham is the foundation for God's purposes and dealings with his people Israel. That's a statement. We don't have time to, to, to chase that rabbit, but I wish we did. God's covenant with David builds on his covenant with Abraham. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant. But it is God's promise to David that indicates David's greater son will be the one through whom the future kingdom will be inaugurated. Jesus. God makes this magnificent statement. And he promises David that his dynasty, culminating in Messiah will never be terminated and that Messiah's kingdom will be forever. With me so far? Nod your head this way. At least I can tell you're still awake. All right. Now, let's look at verse 12. And I'm going to read 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. But it's, it's uh, very important for you to follow with me here. Okay, you ready? When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He's talking about Solomon. With me? He shall build a house for my name 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, you cannot build me a temple, but Solomon is going to. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will forgive him. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness, that word is hesed in Hebrew. Uh, I took a couple of years of Hebrew. That's one of the few words I know. Um, you, you pronounce it like you're clearing your throat. You know how the Hebrew language is, chesed. And it means loving kindness. It means more than that, but it means at least loving kindness. It's kind of the Old Testament word for grace. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And, now, note takers, here you go. And your house, just write the word lineage next to house, and your kingdom, right, the word Israel next to kingdom, shall endure before me forever. Your throne, write the word authority, shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So here we learn that Solomon would succeed David and he would establish his kingdom. Solomon would be the one to build the temple that David longed to build. You know, it's interesting to me that nowhere in this passage is David told why he wasn't allowed to build the temple. But I imagine if I were to ask this congregation, almost everybody in here would be able to answer the question. But the answer really doesn't come until later on in 1 Chronicles 22, 8, where we read, uh, you have shed blood abundantly and made great wars. And that's why I'm not going to allow you to build the temple. So, Solomon, Shalom, peace. He would be the one that would build the temple. So we learn here from this passage, especially this section, that God would establish David's throne forever. Verse 13. God's hesed would be forever. Verse 15. David would have a house forever. Verse 16. A kingdom forever. A throne forever. And would glorify God's name forever. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of David, when he returns to rule over believing Israel, sitting on David's throne. That's when this comes to fulfillment in the future at that time we call the millennium. With me? All right. Good. Bob's been doing a good job. Um, a few years back, we bought a Toyota Camry. <clears throat> was a heck of a car. It's probably still running somewhere. I think we sold it when it had over 300,000 miles on it. That thing was, I mean, it wore like iron and uh, was a great car. But I remember when we first bought it, you know how it is when you buy a car. Then you begin to see, you begin to see that car everywhere. Um, we saw Camrys all over the place. We just hadn't noticed them before. Uh, there was no reason really for us to notice them until we bought it. That's the way it is with this promise made to David. It's all over the place. I can name several. Uh, 
Jeremiah 23, Romans chapter 1, Revelation 22. It is all over the place. I'm just going to pick out two. And I just want you to listen. That's all you need to do. Psalm 89 is the first. It's a royal psalm. It was penned by Ethan. Ethan, did you get that? It was penned by Ethan. Ethan praises the Lord for his covenant with David. Listen to what it says. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 89. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I've sworn to David my servant. Verse 4. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Did you ever make that connection between Psalm 89 and what was going on in 2 Samuel 7? Pretty interesting. Now we just had Christmas and uh, some of you are still recovering from Christmas. But uh, listen to this. See if this sounds familiar. Because at Christmas time, you probably read this. It's from Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. Listen to this, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Next verse. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Sound familiar? Just what we've been talking about this morning. So the final section of this chapter begins in verse 18 with David's response. Remember, it's David's resolve. He's going to build a house for God, for the ark. God's reply, no, you're not, but I will build you a house. And then David's response. So David enters the tabernacle and he sits, the text says he sits before the Lord. Now, I don't know if he was kneeling and then he sat back on his haunches or if he just sat with his head between his knees. I don't know. But I do know this. This, what we're about to read, is one of the most moving prayers in Scripture. And I personally, reading between the lines, see David sitting there weeping just overwhelmed with emotion. And how could it not be? As Meyer said, God is wrapping up the divine no in a promise of infinite blessing. Talk about hesed. Talk about grace. I read that and I got to thinking about uh, when I received a call from Dr. Mark Bailey at the seminary. I was pastoring a church in South Georgia. Um, I had told my wife, Lindsay, I said, you know, if I, if I ever get a chance to go to Israel, I want to go with Charlie Dyer and Mark Bailey. And lo and behold, we were just, we really weren't looking that hard, but one of those trips came up uh, back in 2015. And Lindsay couldn't go, she was teaching school but she had already been to Israel. I'd never been. And she knew it was a lifelong desire that I'd had. And I was uh, 60 at the time. 
and really, really wanted to go to Israel. But I didn't want to just go and see the sights. Anybody can do that. I wanted to learn something. Uh, I, I wanted there to be some education along with the inspiration. So um, I was able to go. And it was, it was a trip of a lifetime. And at any rate, um, that's kind of when it all started. So a month after the trip, I'm sitting at my desk at the church in my office, and I get an email from Dr. Bailey. And Dr. Bailey said, uh, I'd like to talk to you. When do you have time? And being the smart aleck that I am, I replied and I said to him, well, you're the one who's busy. You let me know and I'll make time. So he said, tomorrow at 11 o'clock. Well, the next day, right on the minute at 11 o'clock, I get a phone call and it's from Dr. Bailey. And he asked me to become the chaplain at Dallas Seminary, which is sort of kind of a lifelong dream. Um, I've always had a great love for Dallas Seminary, always. And uh, I remember um, after the conversation was over, I, I pushed the phone forward. I was sitting at the dining room table, and I put my head down on the table all the way. And I just began to boo-hoo. I mean, I was weeping uncontrollably. And wouldn't you know it, I couldn't get in touch with Lindsay. She was teaching. And uh, she was in class. So I called my daughter. And I got her. And, and of course, she starts to panic. Are you okay, Dad? What's wrong? Are you okay? Are you? you know, because I'm just crying and carrying on. Um, and I was able to share with her. Uh, what was going on and it was I, I can't help but think about that because I think that's possibly the way it was with David that he wept in response to the grace of God you know and part of that enters in the fact that I knew I was nobody I mean I didn't have an inferiority complex for me it was solid fact and uh, I knew I was absolutely a turtle on a fence post. Um, absolutely. Well, David accepts the Lord's refusal to allow him to build the temple, even though he doesn't know why. And isn't it true that many times we don't know why God says no? I mean, let's just be honest. Let's keep it real, as the kids say. But you can always bank on the fact that God has something better for us. That would have been a good place to say amen. amen. God always has something, even when we don't understand why. Right after I became a believer, when I was in high school, I trusted Christ when I was 15. I spotted the most beautiful female I've ever seen, still is to me to this day. And uh, so I was just crazy about Lindsay in high school. I mean crazy. And I went to the house of the guy who had led me to Christ. And by the way, his wife had led Lindsay to Christ. We both came to Christ as teenagers. And we've never gotten over it. Never. Never looked back. Um, still try to actively share our faith. Lindsay uh, just traveled to Florida and back. And man, uh, 
if, if you're not saved and you want to be, you want to pray, you get to sit next to Lindsay on an airplane because she will sure share the message with you. At any rate, I remember uh, talking to Mike and Patty about um, how I was praying that Lindsay would just fall madly in love with me. And they said, well, you know, if she doesn't, God's got somebody better for you. And I just thought, no, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. So at any rate, it's true. Uh, I was fortunate in my case. She did finally see the light. And I, I was glad that she had that conversion experience. But you've heard of John Newton, the slave trader who became a pastor following his conversion. And he wrote such hymns as Amazing Grace. This is what he said. This is a great quote, so listen to this. Everything is necessary that he sins. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. If it is in your life, you must need it, even if it is bad. If it is not in your life, you don't need it, even if you think you do. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know that I would have said amen at that point either, because that's a tough one, but it's true. It's absolutely true. David sits before the Lord weeping and he asks, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me this far from the fields and from the sheep and from nothing? I am nothing but a turtle on a fence post. Well, that's in the Hebrew. He says, I am where I am because of your grace and you are where you are because of his grace. Look at verse 20. And again, what more can David say to thee? For thou knowest thy servant, O Lord God. O Lord God. <coughs> Excuse me. And for David to recognize that really shows a lot of humility on his part. You know, if you're honest, you won't be proud. And if you're proud, you're not honest. David continues to give thanks for God's goodness and his sovereignty. David addresses God in this prayer seven times as, O sovereign Lord. Seven times he refers to him that way. And in humility, he refers to himself ten times as your servant, your servant, your servant. He might as well be saying, I'm a turtle on a fence post. I'm a turtle on a fence post. I'm a turtle on a fence post. Now you may be saying, well, I'll never be a King David, nor will I. But you're the son of a greater king. And you're the daughter of a greater king. You say, but I, I'm in a dead end job or I, I'm trapped in obscurity. What difference does it make when you're serving a king? Joseph was in prison. Daniel was in exile. Moses was on the backside of the desert. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul, along with John the Baptist, both had their heads removed. And our king died on a cross. a king with mortal wounds on an immortal body. 
You know what our business is? Our business is to be faithful. If you don't take anything else away from this message, just remember, our business is to be faithful. Our business is to be busy doing what God wants us to do. Our business is to be servants. Our business is to be turtles. Amen? How do we do that? Well, I'll close with this. James 4 says, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. <laughs> I got to tell you this. I've got a friend who had four little girls and they were very diligent at teaching their girls scripture memory verses. And they were working with their youngest girl, uh, Joanna. Joanna? And uh, she, uh, she was learning James 4, 8. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. That's the King James. And, of course, she didn't quite understand it. So they had her say it, and she said, Draw a knife on God, and he'll draw a knife on you. <laughs> Two verses later, he says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let him do the exalting. And you know what? You may not be exalted on this earth, but if you're a faithful turtle, you'll be exalted. Maybe not on this earth, but there is coming a day when you'll be exalted because the way up is down. Let me pray, and then we can move on to the Lord's Supper. Lord, thank you for the life of David. Thank you for the good that we can learn and take away from his life. And we also want to thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus who loved us and died for us and took away our sins. Lord, thank you that even though we are great sinners, that uh, Jesus died in our place. He was our substitute. And you poured out your wrath on him, and in exchange, we get to be forgiven. So thank you, Lord, that Jesus came back from the dead. It not only proved that he was God, but it proved that you accepted his payment for us. So we give you all the praise, especially as we take time now to remember that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.